Welcome to the Men at Work podcast, episode number nine. I am your host, Travis Streb. Today we are talking to my friend Chris Downey. I met Chris in Winnipeg when I was doing some work with him. He is a musician turned leadership development and culture strategist, and he works with Myriad Consulting. He's got spent lots of time working as a manager and executive. In this conversation, we talked a bit about business, talked about Chris's journey from being a musician to working as a leadership and culture consultant, but more about his journey in becoming a more conscious leader, a more conscious father, and a man of character. This is a really, really deep and rich conversation, and I know you're going to get a ton from this episode. Let's dive into episode number nine. Well, let's talk about your story. So you and I met when you were working at Manitoba Public Insurance, but you've got a long history working in organizational development before that. And I'm whenever I come across people that work in this field, I'm like, how did you get into this uh, field? Like it, it kind of exists now you can at, at business school, but like really, did you think you were going to be helping organizations create cultures that people actually like? <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Uh, and it's something I've, I've thought uh, a lot about. And, and um, what, what brought me here, you're absolutely right. At no time did I sit there and, you know, when I was a kid and go, I'm going to go and, and help create great culture. So I'll, I'll take a step back, you know, to, my, my early 20s, so I was studying music um, at university. That's, that's where this kind of this journey starts. And, you know, I was studying music. I was teaching guitar. I was playing in bands. And I, I needed money. Like, that's <laughs> the bottom line. I needed some money. And uh, my, uh, my girlfriend at the time, who's now my, my wife, her, her, her sister worked... Um, uh, in the R&D department of a pharmaceutical company here in Winnipeg and uh, a company called Kangene Corporation. And they were, they were um, scaling up their manufacturing process at the time. So they used to run a, a small, you know, operation that ran five days a week, basically between the hours of eight and four. And they, there was a need for this product that they couldn't keep up with. So they were going to a 24 hour a day operation. So they needed a night, a night shift. And, um, and I needed money. So it was great. So I took that job and my thought was I'll do it for, for about a year. I learned in that year, like that manufacturing process intimately. And one of the things, so Kanji and I will, will say at the time, its flagship product uh, is a product called Winrow. Um, and Winrow's primary indication is to prevent hemolytic disease in the newborn. So simply put, that is if you have a mother that is RH negative blood type and has an RH positive fetus, the immune system views that as a, as a threat and will actually build up antibodies and, uh, and, uh, and ultimately kill it off. So this product was saving unborn babies. It was really, it's, it's very easy to get you know, excited about what you're doing. No kidding. The, the, um, the experience for me was I got to learn this process um, intimately. Uh, so that was fun for me. Um, to be truthful, at the time, I didn't know why it was so fun other than I was just, I enjoyed the work. So we skip ahead. I ended up doing that for a couple of years. There was an opening in our engineering department for a validation technician, and they were looking for a mechanical engineer. Um, and, you know, I thought, oh, that's interesting. It'd be neat to do, but I'm, uh, you know, I'm not an engineer. And the, the director at the time approached me one morning and he said, hey, uh, Chris, you know, there's a opening in my area I noticed you didn't apply and I remember I was I felt pretty humble at the time I went you know I I'm not an engineer I, I kind of thought you knew that he's like yeah I know I, I know that he goes but I need someone that can get stuff done on the floor and and, um, and uh, so if you're interested apply so so I did and th this the reason this is important it takes a little bit of while to get here but this was a pivotal time I remember going into his office one uh, Friday afternoon they visit they give me this uh, this um, job offer. And I remember they said, go home for the weekend and think about it. I went, wait a minute. So you're offering me day work for more money 
You know, like, where do I sign, right? And what happened there was, that's when I actually say I stumbled into a career that I didn't even realize existed. Um, but I, I quickly moved into uh, superv a supervisory role. So now I'm in my you know, mid to late 20s. Now I'm managing a team of engineers, <laughs> which again, as I say, it sounds ridiculous, uh, but I was. And I did that for a couple of years and uh, you know, met some amazing people, traveled, and, and I found myself in some positions that you know, I, don't, I don't know what I was doing in the room in Washington with these brilliant minds and, and me, right? But that's what happened. And then I ended up um, taking on a role as the compliance manager. I did that for about seven or eight years. And that was great. I had a team of really diverse people, still engineers and scientists, uh, brilliant, brilliant people. And that was really where I started to carve my teeth as, as a leader. So that went well. I was doing that for about seven or eight years. And then we went through uh, a leadership change and a new CEO came in. He started doing things like I had never seen before. He was moving people from one department to the next and shoveling around, shuffling stuff around. I, I had never really been exposed to executives that operated at that point. This is a, a gentleman out of, uh, out of um, Philadelphia. His name is John Sador, and I, I credit a lot of where I'm at now due to my, ex my experience with him. And one of the things he... Uh, he and the, the group of executives that came in, as you can imagine, there was a turnover of a lot of the, the executive team. They realized they wanted to have a, a corporate training and development department because we had our head office in Winnipeg, but we had operations in Baltimore and uh, Philadelphia and we had a sales force throughout the US. And there was no corporate training entity. And uh, he, he, he felt passionate that we should have that. We also felt that the person leading it needs to have credibility with, uh, with the staff. So my name, I guess, came up. Uh, it, it, with this and uh, and I was approached about this this opportunity and it was in HR and I'm not gonna lie when I was approached they said there's an opportunity in HR for you I was I was honestly offended I was like no I'm not like that's not right um, and so I you know whoever approached me I said thank you it's nice I, I, I'm honored but I'm quite happy with what we're doing in quality and, and I'd like to continue about a week later, John happened to be in Winnipeg and he came into my office and, and he said, hey, I understand there's an opportunity for you um, in HR. I said, yeah, yeah, I was, he was happy to hear it. Um, but, you know, I quite like where things are going. He goes, oh, this is, at the time, this man in his, you know, mid-70s or early 70s probably, very wise. He goes, oh, it's not quite the answer I was expecting from you. I said, okay. And he said, I'm gonna ask you a couple of questions. And I said, okay, fair enough. And he, and he said, why do you think you've been successful? And I thought about it and I don't even know what I said. I, pro I gave him uh, what I call an interview answer, something I would think he would wanna hear. And he goes, okay, that's, that's good. And then he said, uh, what motivates you? And then he goes, uh, I'm gonna answer that for you if you don't mind. And he goes, uh, Helping people be successful motivates you. He goes, you've been successful not because of what you've known, but about your ability to get the right people around the table at the right time to make the right decision. And I was like, oh, I liked hearing it. And I didn't really think much about it. I'm no fool. When your CEO says you should take a position, I took the position. Yeah. Um, but he was 100% right. All of my success had nothing to do with what I knew technically, because I already said, I wasn't qualified for the roles, man. Like, you know, um, Health Canada has very specific guidelines. Thou shalt have a Bachelor of Science in this specific area to have the role I was in. What I started to realize was, what made me effective was my ability to, to work with people. Um, so that, so I made, and then that's when I got into more the development side of things. And, and I thank him for that because I wouldn't have gotten there without that, you know, course correction. Um, and then at that time, we were going through a huge culture transition as an organization. We had grown, we had become a bureaucratic organization and, and we weren't doing things as efficiently as we once were. We were an innovative organization originally, but we had, it's amazing we start working with government, you start to reflect it. Right, so you start. We started. So we had to start to change all of that. I didn't know it at the time. I didn't realize it was a culture transition, but that's what we were doing. And I learned so much in that, you know, couple of years. 
uh, about culture and, and how people work together. And then I got a call from MTI and uh, I thought, what's the harm? I'll go in for the interview. And what I uh, learned about at the time was MPI was embarking on a culture transition to, I wanted in. I wanted, I wanted, I wanted to go in and be part of that transition. And, you know, there's going into uh, a crown corp to, to shift culture. To me, I thought it was all upside. I mean, if you don't do it, no one's going to blame you. But if you do it, that's an amazing experience. And that's what brought me over uh, to MPI. Um, and where I really started to sink in my teeth into this whole idea of what really makes for a healthy uh, culture at work. That's what brought me here. Does that answer your, uh, your totally. question? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's funny, you know, to move from literally sweeping up the shop floor to trying to reinvent a culture and organization. It, yeah. it's, a, it's a strange deviation, but it's not, it's not that uncommon. I mean, a lot of people, most people don't have this kind of linear path to where they're at. Um, right. There's lots of, looks more like a roller coaster ride than it does um, a super highway. So you've been, you've been working in this, in organizational development, you know, for a good stint. Now you're, you're at um, Myriad Consulting, helping other organizations do the same culture shift. I'm curious though, like what are some of the gender dynamics that you've seen actually change in your career so far? I mean, and I, you know, again, focusing specifically on gender, there's lots of other things we should be thinking about as far as diversity, but the gender piece is, is still on a lot of people's minds. You know, um, I want to say I've seen a massive shift. And I probably would have said that, you know, a couple of years ago, but I'm really not convinced that, that we have seen a massive shift. I, I will say what I have seen shift is there's a, a heightened awareness around um, you know gender specifically in the workplace um, diversity at a much broader scale awareness is there um, but I'm not convinced at this point that I've seen the shift that we first need um, or even the shift that we we, we often talk about right um, I think there, so I, what I've seen is a heightened awareness. I've, I've certainly seen more dialogue and heard more dialogue, but I don't think we've progressed um, as much as we, we certainly need to, um, or as much as we like to say we have. Yeah, I mean, I, I've heard, yeah, I've heard varying answers to this question. Some people think we've come, you know, maybe not a long way, but there's been some progress made for sure. Um, the awareness piece is big. Sure. Why, um, why is it important for you? Like this whole idea of gender equality, when you and I are talking about the cast and being interviewed for it, you know, there's, there's generally something more behind it yeah. when it's, you know, a conversation between two men talking about gender equality, um, where we know, we know where the, uh, the balance of power lies. Yeah. Well, so it's been, it's a couple of things. I will say the, the biggest, the most significant shift in my life um, in the last decade was uh, I, am a, the, I have a seven-year-old daughter. And uh, so Isla is her name. And, uh, and when she was born, I started thinking a lot about the world that she was going to grow up in. You know, so I'm, you know, I'm 43. So my daughter was, I was 36 when, uh, when she was born. So I wasn't young getting into the, <laughs> the fatherhood game. And one of the benefits of coming into it at 36 is you're in a different headspace at 36. And I was, I was, I was figuring myself out. So when she was born, I started to really think long and hard about first the world that she's going to grow up in. And then I started to really think about how do I contribute to that world? And I started to realize, Travis, that, you know, I, if you asked me then, I would say, absolutely, I'm a feminist. I agree with, you know, gender equality and, you know, equal pay. And I would, I would say all of the right things, but I started to realize maybe I'm, 
part of the problem more than I am the solution. And I, and I started to peel back the, the layers a little bit and realize that unintentionally, which I tell myself that so I can sleep at night, um, I might not be as helpful uh, as I would like to be in creating the future I want for my daughter. Does that make sense? Makes a ton of sense. I can relate, relate 100%. I mean, it's, uh, I think it takes a lot of courage to admit that, but also it's, it's, it's not necessarily a lack of desire, um, but it's just about being, not being conscious of it even. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, certainly. I I count myself in the you know in the same category as that. It's being completely unconscious about impact. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you nailed it there with the impact. My intent was one thing. My my impact perhaps was a little bit different. So 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 there, there was the the birth of my daughter Isla. That was that was a huge shift in my life. But also at the same time, and this kind of completes the story I was saying before about my my journey. Uh, as Isla was growing. You know, about four or five years ago, I met uh, a gentleman by the name we've talked about before, Steve DeGroot, uh, who's the president of Myriad, who I now work with. And so as Steve and I started to get to know each other, uh, I learned a lot more. Steve has been researching human behavior for 20 years, 25 years. And he, uh, he articulates well what drives our behavior. And... and Really, this idea he refers to it as, as, you know, as your core four, your needs, your values, your goals, your strengths. Everything that we do as humans you know, uh, tie into these pieces. And, and what Steve opened me up to was this idea of what are, what are my, my core values? Because those are really what drive what we do. And so as, so as Isla's growing, I'm figuring myself out too. And I'm, I'm, I'm actually thinking back through work. I, that's where it started from. What was an operation in all of those moments that made me sick? not just successful, but engaged and, and willing to do? Because there was times I loved the work and the environment was awful, but I was still showing up early, staying late, and, and, and. And what I got, what I was able to figure out about, learn about myself, is that I have three really strong values that when those are activated, I'm, I'm at my best. When I get to collaborate with people, when I get, when I'm in a team environment and a team that borders on family, this is why as I said, it's important because my time at Kanjeen, we were a dysfunctional family, but we were a family and I need, you know, I needed that. And I need to be creative or innovative. If I'm doing those three things in any way, I am, all over it. So going back to your question, the birth of my daughter caused me to start to go deep on myself um, and the role I play in society as a man. All of the while, I was also figuring out what are my core values that drive how I operate. Because at that time, I was trying to figure out what do I want to do next work-wise. And what I realized is whatever I do next, if those three things are happening, I'm digging it, right? So those were the two things that were happening that opened me up to start to really look at what we're talking about. Yeah, I mean, certainly it's, it's, it's obvious, you know, when I'm talking to you, you and I have collaborated on a number of things. The collaboration is huge for you. Cre creativity side is big. And, I'm, you know, this is an interesting point because, you know, when I, part of my curiosity around this topic is how do you bring that creativity and that collaboration into organizations that are, let's say a little more rigid and structured, you know, you did a, a good job of that working in, in HR, you know, for a massive insurance company that is, you know, by many standards, super structured, you know, very, I'd say very masculine dominant. And I mean that not in the gender way, but more in the energy way. Like every, everything has a process and a structure and a strategy and there's lots of, lots of that. So yeah. how do you bring that collaborative creative element into a place that um, may not always have it? Yeah, how do you bring uh, 
innovation into taupe-lined walls and cubicle farms and all of those things, right? Yeah, the sea foam, sea foam cubicle <laughs> walls. Yeah, well, you know, and this and this is um, this is where when I, I say my connection with my values and then the birth of my daughter are they they come together because Isla coming into the world opened me up really to be able to to to, to figure that one out because I was dealing with you know, uh, emotions I hadn't really processed before. Um, and what I realized and, and through the work that I was doing with Steve and my own kind of self work is, it's actually not so much about the environment that impacts your ability to be creative, to be, these are my values. Other people have different values, but these are, these are mine. So what I started doing, uh, Travis, at that time, I started actually thinking back when I was figuring out the values that were constant for me, I actually went back to uh, being a you know, musician and playing in bands. This is where it started. I went, what, what meaning did playing in a band hold for me? See, I used to dismiss it as say I love music, right? And for years, I just said, well, I love music, so I played in bands. Well, there's a lot of people that love music that don't play in bands. So I started thinking, well, what, what meaning did being in a band hold for me? And I realized that, well, I got to be a part of a team, and bands are like family, dysfunctional and, and all of that, right? I got to collaborate and I got to create, right? And innovate. Wow. So that was great. And what I realized, if I get to do that at work, the meaning of whatever I'm doing, it, for me, is the same as playing in a band. And that was pretty profound for me to realize. So then I started looking at my time at MPI. There were opportunities to collaborate with people connect yourself when you came into the mix and we you know, brought you to do some work with us we would collaborate that's that's meaningful for me yeah there's a bunch of budget stuff i had to do all that sort of stuff but i got to, to do that i got to you know how are we going to shift a culture in a environment like this well we have to get creative right um the opportunity to live your values exists in almost any environment if you really connect to what the meaning holds for you. And once I realized that for myself, this, and this is my individual journey, and then I could tell you how we did it elsewhere, was once I realized, I made the connection that I need to collaborate with people, but yet I'm spending a day doing budget work, well, I'd call someone into my office. Let's riff on an idea. Even for 15 minutes, it charged me up. They would leave, I'm inspired. I'd go deal with the stuff I didn't want to deal with. So I connected with the meaning of the work held for me, right? So when, when, when you start to look at shifting a culture, you really need to look at ways to make not the work meaningful for the, for the employees, but the experience they're having while working meaningful. And when you do that, the things like the top line walls and the cube farms and the budget cutbacks start to go fade into the background. And those aren't the barriers that we tend to think that they are. Well, that, you know, I'm, I actually am curious about this culture shift piece because I, I spoke with Shannon Lepke about this a little bit, yeah. but how you, I mean, I, I'd say you, you achieved what you set out to do, which is to shift the culture. Certainly I saw it in my time there working as a, a consultant um, from the outside in. Mm -hmm. What, what role did, did gender play in that? Were you looking specifically at diversity? Were you looking at, at shifting the conversation? You know, you had a, you'd come off having a, you know, um, a female CEO and then you had a male CEO, but you had okay gender balance. Was it, was it part of the conversation and the culture shift? Um, and if it was, how did you, how did you tackle it? Yeah. Yeah. I, so, um, the importance of diversity was a significant piece of the approach that we took. Um, and when I, when I say diversity, it was, it, you know, obviously we can look at employee equity, look at, you know, um, you know, females, um, you know, visible minorities, all that stuff. But I'm talking, we were talking about the, the need to have diversity of thought was so critical in shifting things. So that's where we were starting from. How do we make sure that the environment, we're, we're accessing everybody, 
that's available. So this is, I remember one of my first meetings at MPI, it was a manager's meeting. It was, don't get me wrong, it was stuffy and I'm in there. And at the time the CEO was talking about, you know, I, I'm off my numbers, but something about we need to find $50 million or something like that. I don't remember what it was. I remember going, well, that's easy. The answers are in the room here. Like it's, a, like, it's amazing when you actually tap into your full talent pool, the resources that are there, but you need to actually get to them. So a big part of what we were setting out to do was to give voice perhaps to those that didn't have one um, in the past. So that was part of our approach. I'm not gonna say we were totally successful at that. Again, intent and impact are different things. Um, we knew that was necessary and we took a lot of action to make sure that, that we did have a broader um, voice from the organization. That meant moving people up and, and, and all of those things that go with it. Um, but I don't think we shifted as much as again was necessary that's not that i'm not that's not a slam on anyone that participated in it. it's just the reality yeah it happens i mean no one's no one's planning to you know have an ineffective culture shift and it, you accomplish a lot so what is that you know to make space for other people's voices because this is a theme that comes up a lot when we look at the differences between the way that men and women tend to communicate in organizations you know generalization here is that you know men tend to overspeak you and i are certainly you know, we, we love the sound of our own voices. We, um, you know, we will do that. Yeah. Women tend to, in general, contribute a, a bit less. And there's all, all kinds of reasons behind that, which we've talked about in other episodes. But what do you think, like for you as a, a you know, a strong male leader in an organization, what, were, what are some of the things that you do to try to make that space to get voices heard? Yeah, uh, it's a great question, and, and it, it is relevant to my growth as a, as a, as a my journey as a man and uh, as a human, probably more importantly. Um, you know, before we talked about intent and impact, you know, you, you know me, Travis, I, I value relationships and, uh, immensely, and I love connecting with people, and, and I really want to hear what people have to say. And if, if someone would tell me they, they, they held back, it would, it, would, it would bother me. And what I realized um, you know, not all that long ago is that as much as that's what I want, you know, I'm a leader as a director. I'm 6'8", got a deep voice. I, I talk confidently that can overpower pretty quickly. And I, I can shift the energy in a room. I remember walking through uh, past the administrative staff in my area, going to my office, and I was grimacing. And I, the reality was I was actually thinking, it had nothing to do with work. I was thinking about going to a Jets game and, and how we were going to coordinate. But I walked into that room and walked through into my office, and I completely shifted the energy. And I realized like, oh man, like that's, that's not what I want to do. So to answer your question, what, what did I do and what do I do? I, I actually try to, um, I, don't, I don't want to get into a power discussion here specifically, it's a much deeper <laughs> conversation, but I try to equalize the power differential that can be at play at times, especially if I'm the leader. It isn't even about gender now, this is just, if I'm the leader, I'm the leader. The, 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 we can say it's a safe environment, but I still, you know, cut the check at the end of the day. That still factors in. But even things like my height, it was an employee that pointed this out to me. If I go to talk to somebody, I actually often sit down. So we're actually talking um, face to face as opposed to standing over top of your cubicle, waving my finger. And I, I became more aware of my, um, my presence being a potential inhibitor to employees, not just women, but both uh, employees. So for me, once I was aware of that, I started to try to catch myself in those moments and then would try to engage um, people more often and, and ask and not make the assumption that well, they haven't said anything, they don't have anything to say. So I, I would do my best to try to create a, a safe environment for people um, to want to talk and make it meaningful for them to talk. 
Um, yeah, I mean, I, I've, you know, certainly, you know, obviously we're in audio here, but yeah, I mean, I've met Chris in person. Yeah, you know, you, you're a, you are a uh, man of large stature with a booming voice and you use it and it, it's like, you shouldn't be afraid. I think it, the work of men is not necessarily to, you know, it's like, well, don't say anything. Yeah. It's more about what you just talked about. It's a, it's a level of consciousness. I think there are, you know, more and more workplace cultures are becoming more conscious. You talk about it as awareness. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious what you think needs to happen on the action front from a culture perspective. Like, how can we create cultures where people really want to come to work and especially that makes space uh, for, for a, a much more balanced approach to gender in the workplace? Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question. And this, you know, this goes back to, I made a comment to you before about, you know, I don't think we've, we're where we need to be. And I, you know, in many ways, we're going back. I saw some um, numbers recently around um, where things are at, you know, the, um, the gender pay gap, for example, we're, we're still, you know, decades away from, from closing that gap. Um, on our current trajectory. On our current trajectory, yes. <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's right. Assuming we continue status quo, we're decades away. Um, and this was uh, this was actually something I got from a woman by the name of uh, um, uh, Sandy uh, Krawcheck is her name, and she uh, runs a company called Elevest out of the U.S. And you know, she had decided that you know we're decades away from closing the gender pay gap for white women. They're like a hundred years away from joining. Uh, uh, closing the gender pay gap for uh, African American women. I mean, it's just it's we're not we're not we're not getting there. And so, bringing this into you know the workplace, what needs to shift is we there's things we can do within organizations. I, I believe what we need to do fundamentally is I believe all organizations have two fundamental responsibilities to their people. There's a lot of responsibilities they have, but there's two very important ones. The first is the environment in which people come to work, whatever that might be, needs to be an environment where people feel safe to bring their whole person to work. And the whole person means the good and the bad, if you will. The I'm not doing well today type of thing, or I'm doing spectacular today, or whatever. So they need to be able to bring their whole person to work. And the second is the environment needs to be such that when they leave at the end of the day, they're in as good a shape as they were when they got there, if not better. Now, I, I understand there's times you're gonna leave in worse shape, but then the responsibility is actually on the organization to get them back to that place. Does that make sense? Yeah, there's a great, you know, great organizational principles to live by. Right, so what has to happen, let's go back to that safety piece. And going back to your question, what has to shift? You know, we talk a lot about safety. And again, this is, this is some of the stuff that we, we do at Myriad that comes from Steve's research. But it's more than just safety. All human beings, men and women, to do our best require three things. And we refer to them as the three great states. We need to feel safe for sure. Uh, that's emotionally safe, psychologically safe, physically safe. But we need to feel significant so we need to what that means is we need to feel valued we need to feel valued as the as a human we need to feel valued for our role right and the third we call it situated which is we need purpose and it's not greater purpose like you know like you know everyone's i want to find my purpose this is what's what's the purpose of this task right like what is it and those three things work together very much like have you ever been in a in a social setting where you didn't know what you were really doing there and you didn't you didn't necessarily know if people even really care whether you're there or not oh yeah oh yeah so you've been there how long does it take before you start to go why are you adding any value to this and then you almost don't even feel safe in that situation all you really want to do is get out of it right we've all been there so all humans men and women to be, in order for us to do our best and be our best, we need to have these three great states at play. So what has to happen at work is we need to create environments where people feel safe to be themselves, feel valued for what they contribute, 
and actually understand what the purpose is. So it starts with creating that. And when you do, then you create an environment where people can, can, can operate at their best. And the reason that's important, this goes back to your previous question about diversity, is usually when people come in, they figure out the environment, the culture, and they figure out and they operate in the narrow lane that is the culture. And they keep all of the stuff on the peripherals hidden, right? So if the whole person, think about the whole person being a 180 degree piece and there's a center lane right in there, right? Everyone learns how to operate. And they get 110% in that safe zone where they feel safe. Greatness doesn't happen in that zone, man. See, greatness happens in the fringes. And unless the environment is safe where people can actually bring up those ideas or speak up or do this, do that, you're never going to access that. So it starts there. I mean, that's a, that's a big task. I, I, and I love that that's the first principle. I think it's, in my view, it's probably the hardest to achieve. I mean, you think about the range, the range of acceptable behavior. Yeah. And I had this conversation the other day um, with Tina Strelka, who's the CEO of Minerva BC. Yeah. And their, you know, their mission is really around gender equality for, for British Columbia. And she said, well, there's an acceptable behavioral range for women that is different than for men. And so it, you know, and it it depends organization to organization, but in general, you know, she's like, there's, it's, it's acceptable and behaviorally for women to have, you know, operate in a narrow range, which is, which matters. Now, for me though, I'm interested in this range topic in a different way. And you touched on it earlier. You talked about, about emotion. And this is an area where, in general, men are typically void or they have an extremely narrow range of emotion that they will display in the workplace. Right. And, and right, you know, there's maybe the organization has put that on them. But I think part of it is if someone, as you said, it's if someone is really going to be able to show up as their whole self, there's got to be some emotional content. Absolutely. And women tend to be better at displaying this uh, than men in the, within the appropriate range. I'm not saying that everyone's got to show up to work and, you know, fully express every single emotion that they feel. That might be a bit of a challenging work environment. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's got to be more than we have today. And I see, I see that. What, yeah. what do you think about that idea? Yeah, I, I mean, you're spot on, Travis. So, so a couple of things. I believe fundamentally men and women both have the ability to display emotion equally um, in how we're born. Um, I think we're taught different things as we grow up uh, about what's acceptable versus what's not acceptable. So I believe men have an incredible um, ability to be um, connected emotionally. but don't do to the environment that they were brought up in and what they view as, as acceptable. Now, so I'm going to go back to this, this piece of safety. Actually, I'll go back to my early, my early roles as a leader. Who, have, who were our, our role models? My, my, when I took that role, that role as a manager of compliance, so here I'm managing this large group of people. And again, you know me, I value relationship and I, I like to think I'm a compassionate person. The first time I had an employee come into my office and have a breakdown. I remember this well. I don't remember what the issue, issue was. But I had um, a human being come into my office and have a very human reaction to something. And I'll tell you, I didn't say this, but this is what I actually thought. Now, remember, I'm a bit you know, ashamed to admit it, but it's part of growth. <laughs> this person came down, they had a breakdown. And all I could think was, are you kidding? Like, can you not be, cry at home. There's no, there's no place for this right now. Like I couldn't finish the conversation fast enough because it was an impediment to getting stuff done. And when I think back on that, why would someone that values compassion and relationship have that reaction? And I realized the only thing that helps me sleep at night when I think back to that is that it's what I was taught. 
not necessarily directly, but indirectly, right? By my leaders, right? So when we get into what we you know, refer to as this masculine behavior of never let them see you sweat type of stuff, right? I remember I had, I, had a, I had a VP once, I actually made an apology in an email about something had gone awry. I said, I have to apologize. This was my, his response was never apologize, right? I think back to that. And he meant well, he was trying his best to, to coach me. But I realized my, my role models uh, of what I thought a good leader were, were fundamentally flawed, right? So as part of my growth, to your point of what needs to change and how do men become more emotionally connected, you're right, women, because of the way we're socialized, are better at this. Men themselves don't feel safe to express emotionally. And I, I'll, I'll put this out to you and I'll answer the question, not to make you uncomfortable. Has there ever been a time, whether it's in your personal life or your professional life, when you felt tears coming on and you shut it down? Oh man, years? you don't, yeah, you don't need to answer that one for me. It's happened on numerous occasions. Right. And the story you just told about, you know, having someone, I don't know what the emotion was. I'm assuming it's sadness. You know, yeah. men have a very difficult time you know, working with someone, it's like if, oh, someone's crying at work, like, oh my goodness, we need to freak out. Yeah. Your reaction is, is the same as, as um, certainly I've had that reaction. I, and I believe that there are, you know, uh, myriad <laughs> other men that have had yeah. that happen to them. Right. So for sure it's happening. You're like, push it down, push it down, push it down. Because yeah. that's what you're supposed to do. And now there may be, you know, there may be a time for that, but is there an allowance for more range? Yeah, well, that's, so this is, where, this is where it needs to start. So the reason we would shut that emotion, so here we are, a human being having a, if you're tearing up, it's meaningful. That's awesome. That's a really good thing. Even in sadness, that's an incredible thing. But we don't celebrate that, right? And for, it's more meaningful, in those experiences, Travis, it was more meaningful for us to actually mask that emotion because why? We didn't feel safe because we might get judged, we might look like less of a man, we might get yeah, you all of the, the range. So the environment, that goes back to my point about the environment needs to be safe, to be able to really be yourself. So this is applies obviously to women, but it also applies to, to men as well, where we can actually be ourselves. But as I, as I say that, I feel more refreshed even saying that. Could you just imagine if that was the case? So what needs to shift for us is obviously how the workplace works for sure, but it starts much, much earlier. And this goes back to what we celebrate socially as strengths. There are so many things that we celebrate as that we think are, and there are strengths. There's nothing wrong with, you know, desire to win. That's awesome. I just think if your goal is to win, you're setting the bar pretty low, honestly. We don't celebrate um, you know, someone's ability to, to be connected with their emotion as a strength. One of the things that amazes me when we talk about women in leadership, um, and I'm no expert in that because I am not a woman, uh, but one of the things that comes up often is confidence. Okay, so I've thought lots about that, and you hear that, that that's always something not, you know, that comes up repeatedly in uh, in, in you know, what's needed in that program to, to give women more confidence. And, and I believe that, obviously, if that's what's being said, that, that there's some truth to that. But I started to think on that one a little bit more and go, is that the case? Or are we perceiving how some women operate as having a lack of confidence? Because we aren't actually celebrating the strength they're exhibiting. So I started really thinking about this one, Travis, just recently. And I was thinking about again, how we're socialized. And, and, and girls in our society are generally brought up to care for people. And boys are brought up to win. Right? That's, that's, where, that's where it starts to begin with. So it's easy for us to say, well, let's just start bringing our girls up more in a, in a more balanced way. Now, I don't think we should teach girls that winning's the, the goal. I think the way that we actually bring our girls up is, is strong inherently. And maybe we should be getting boys to be more like girls. And here's an example. Go back to a time in your life and you're with a group of people and you're about to do something really stupid, maybe dangerous. 
who's the first voice to say, should we be doing this? If there was a, if there was a girl in there, usually a, usually a girl that would say that. Now, is that a sign of lack of confidence? No, that's a strength. She's applying common sense in that situation. Yeah, a little bit of intuition, maybe. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. But my point is, what, in that moment, I mean, I, I've certainly had those moments where I've had someone go, wait a minute, should you really jump off of that? That's, that's not someone that has a fear of risk. That's someone that's risk intelligent. They're displaying, we, we celebrate the wrong strengths. So we need to shift socially what we recognize as strengths. And I believe a man that has the ability to let himself cry or come to grips with whatever emotion, that's not a sign of a weak man, that's the sign of a strong man, as the same as a woman that would do the same thing. We need to celebrate a di more diverse range of strengths that we have and recognize them. Well, I mean, that and, and also, there's a lot of this is, is like, well, you know, do you, have, do you have to cry at work to be, you know, to be emotionally connected? <laughs> I, think, I think for men, it's like they're very comfortable displaying anger. Oh, absolutely. Like we're really good at displaying anger, and anger is often the mask for the other emotions, right? Sure. So, well, you look at, I mean, look at, look at your example. You, you got angry at a person that was, that was sad. Yeah. <laughs> you, you know? But it's, a, it's an interesting one, because along with, with sadness, there's anger, fear, and joy. Yeah. Those are also, you know, can it, you know when, when was the last time that you're working in an organization uh, that's, you know, highly masculine, highly structured, and there's, and there's you know, the CEO displays joy if, if the CEO is a man. It's not. It's just like this kind of neutral range, which oh. doesn't help. But I, I do want to touch on your point where you talked about it's not necessarily valued. It's not measured well. Yeah. So we don't measure whether people um, like having, you know, an emotionally connected workplace, except, you know, there's survey data out there and then, you know, the McKinsey data from 2017 on women in leadership does talk about, you know, people want to work in places where people are emotionally connected. Not that there's massive displays of emotion happening all the time, but that they're there. Yeah, they do because they're human beings. We, going back to that idea of our needs, all humans, all of us, we are social beings that require connection. It's, it's, we actually die without it. We need it, men and women. So you're absolutely right. People want it, not only want it, need it, value it. That, and what's really interesting and where we're at with work right now is this. It's actually the, it's going to get us out of where we're at right now. Because right now we're, we're at, I, 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 do, I, do, I do a talk on this. We're at a crossroads that if we continue down this path, this is not just about gender now. If we continue doing what we're doing, things are going to get worse. People are getting sicker at work, sometimes dying, right? That is absurd. There are two, two interesting stats, uh, the World Health Organization and the London School of Economics. These are two completely different yeah. institutes, right? And the World Health Organization, um, I, I might be off on, on this quote, but you know, I, I think it's by 2020, he sees mental health issues as being the second cause of, of human morbidity. And the London School of Economics see, you know, depression and, you know, mental health issues in the workplace as being the largest impediment to workforce mobilization. That is unacceptable. And here's the thing, this is why it's got attention now, because it's costing money, right? It's costing money and now we need to do something about it. And the way out, is by giving us what we actually need fundamentally as human beings, and that's connection. You know, we talk about, you ever, you ever use this saying with someone, don't take it personal, it's just business? I've used it, I've heard it, yeah, sure. absolutely. Yeah, so how do you tell a person not to take it personal? They're people, that's the, there's the strength. We, what's, what's gonna, and I think I've talked to you about this before, there's a, a book called Humans Are Underrated by a guy named Jeff Colvin. Yeah. It talks about these unique human qualities that we have and empathy being one of those. That's what's going to advance us in, in the future of work, not our ability to meet KPIs. You'll meet the KPIs. You know what I'm getting at? We, yeah. This goes back to all of us have that need to connect, to feel cared for, to feel valued.
that's where we need to get to in, 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 uh, in our workforce if we really want to shift, um, let's say, the state of wellness, um, but just shift things as a whole. Yeah, that, I mean, that's a, that's a well put point. That's, that, that connection is important. And I think it's creating the environment where that connection can happen in, uh, safely and, and that work still gets done. I mean, organizations still have to get work done. This is not about you know, necessarily sitting around and holding hands and singing Kumbaya all day at work, yeah. um, to borrow a, a tired phrase. But it, it's, it is, what it is about is building the right environment for connection to happen in regardless of gender. But there are some important differences. Sure. Let me ask, so <laughs> when you reflect on this, yeah. and you talk a little bit about socialization, I have I have two daughters. You have you have a daughter. Mine are twelve and and eight. As we record this, mm-hmm. how how do you bring that? How do you try to bring out different traits and and how do you try to you know unprogram that socialization as a father? Yeah, well, that's a great question. That's that's where it all started for me, Travis. Was what sort of things might I do unintentionally to perpetuate? the way we've operated socially. And for me, first, there's two examples I'll use, but the first one actually started with this idea of, and I'm my daughter seven, you know, she's, you know, you know, a few years away from, from dating and whatever she decides to do. But it was this idea of, you know, you can't go out dressed like that, right? That, that comes up. And you hear dad say that, the idea of the dad sitting there with a shotgun because the boys are coming, and I started really thinking about that. It's like, you can't go out looking like that. Well, why can't you go out looking like that? Well, why? Because it makes me as a man feel uncomfortable. <laughs> That's the bottom line. The question I should ask is, are you comfortable? Then awesome. Because there's no stats to say how you change is going to affect anything. What you look like isn't going to change. You know what I'm getting at? Like, yeah, yeah. It's my own stuff. So I believe for years, fathers coming from a place of love would actually put barriers around our, our daughters, right? To protect them, that was the intent, but the impact was very different and a much different message was being sent. So I started on that idea of, you know, can't go looking like that is where it went to. But then I started thinking about my, my daughter, she loves, I'll just say pretty things. She loves shiny things, she loves dressing up. You know, she, you know she's, she's not so much to it right now, but she was into princesses and all those sorts of things. So my wife and I would have these great debates, actually, about why don't, you know, my wife would be like, why don't the princess say, I don't, she doesn't need a man. And she's, and she, I understand, you know, where, where my wife's coming from. But I would see great power and strength in what she was doing. And so asking your question, my daughter would fall under what we would call a girly girl. And I think that's incredibly strong. Socially, that can be used as a negative, there's a bit of a negative context to it. But why? I'm gonna share one story with you about, about Isla. So I said she likes beautiful things, pretty things, and she calls them out and she cherishes them. So my daughter was, as much as she loved princesses, she also loved Spider-Man. And so a few years ago, we were in you know, Mexico on a family vacation and we found her a, a Spider-Man like mask, you know, like the Mexican wrestling masks with a yep. cape on the back. I know the ones. So we got her that. And uh, she's, now we're back in Winnipeg. My wife's taking her down to uh, uh, get ice cream or something at the corner. And at the corner of our street, there was uh, a bit of a recluse guy that you didn't see very often. His house was in, in bad shape. And I, this is my, my stuff now, kind of an odd looking fellow. And uh, I was walking down. And he's raking the lawn and he looks and sees her with this mask on and he smiles, this big smile. And, and, and what, what, you know, through our lens, it was kind of shows his bad teeth and, 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 and what my daughter did, she turned to, to her, to her mom and goes, that man's beautiful. And walks on. It's like, that is awesome. Her, she loves beautiful things, but what she thinks is beautiful is a man smiling or a this or you know what I'm getting at? Yeah. So what I realized was I have to shut my stuff off and recognize the strengths 
that they are. And if I view it as a weakness, that's my problem. That is not hers. But the last thing I need to do is put my stuff. It's not the language I usually use, but my stuff on her. Oh, don't worry. And, this, this podcast is rated explicit on iTunes. So you okay. can say, so say you whatever you need to All say. Right. Good, good. That's Does that make sense? That, it makes that, a ton of sense. And it's, I think it's a good point, you know, to not, to not, you know, the, the work, the work of men, you know, parents in general, but the work of men is to not necessarily, it's try to, you know, not repeat the same socialization that we had that, yeah. um, that is ineffective, but to repeat the socialization that is effective. And I think what the, yes. the risk we run here in part of this conversation and one that I really want to shift and I applaud you for celebrating is we don't want to end up in this world where it's entirely neutral. Yeah. where we we socialize boys and girls to just behave the same and yeah, absolutely. Like, like there's you know and especially when we start talking about this in terms of you know the yin and yang or masculine and feminine energy that you know men and women both hold they have both yeah it's awesome and so how do you bring that out like if someone likes beautiful things that's great celebrate it if somebody you know, it's like i think the the risk we run again is that drift towards neutrality yeah. as a society and so part of my you know conversation i really am interested in having here is how do you celebrate the differences how do you celebrate the fact that there's you know this feminine and masculine energy and there's a there's a room for it in the workplace um and so i i think your example with isla is a beautiful illustration and i think it's a great place for us to to close on because you talked about the idea of people being able to bring their whole self to work. And this, this uh, podcast, Men at Work, looks at work. It looks at the workplace, has the context. Yeah. Yet it spills over everywhere. And so I want to thank you for bringing that lens and, and sharing those personal stories. Because if, if who you are at home isn't who you are at work, um, that it's, it's causing a problem. And as, as you said, maybe even leading some of these mental health issues. So with that, Chris, um, last word to you. Well, you, you, you nailed it. So first of all, Charles, thank you for, for two things. Thanks for having me here uh, today to do this. And thank you for putting this, this, this out, this information, because I think this is so incredibly important. Um, you, you nailed it right there. Is this is all human stuff. Work is people, human beings coming together. So to shut off the human element makes absolutely no sense. To celebrate the human element is what makes sense. And more importantly, that's actually going to get us out of where we're at and not to repeat the sins of the past, if you will. I believe fully that if we change how the experience of work, work becomes a source of wellness that recharges us to deal with the stresses of life, not the other way around. Life has variables that can take us out the knees. Work shouldn't. Work should be a source of wellness that helps you deal with the stress of life. Well put, my friend. Um, we're going to close on that. I will link up all the stuff that you talked about, all the resources, the books, linked to, to Myriad on the show notes. Make sure folks have access to it. Uh, if people want to find out more about you, Chris, where can they find you? Uh, I would say to, to go to the, the coreleader.com. Um, that is a, a site that I co-founded with Steve DeGroote, who, uh, who I work with at Myriad, that is filled with um, tons of, of resources that speak to everything I talked about today. Uh, I, said, I, I feel silly saying co-founded because so much of it is Steve's content, um, but I, I feel I contributed some ideas. But the coreleader.com, that's where you can find me and that's where you can find a lot of information based on what we talked about. Amazing. Thank you, my friend. Uh, I appreciate your time and uh, we'll chat to you soon. All right. Thanks. All right. All right. That is a wrap on episode number nine with Chris Downey. I hope you took a lot out of that conversation. Chris and I had a ton of fun chatting about all things work, men, and life. If you like this episode or any other episodes, please give me a like on iTunes, on SoundCloud, or wherever else you listen to your podcasts. 
And if you do find a minute, please write a review. It really helps me get the word out and build an audience. Thank you. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you.